Welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. On this episode, I had an opportunity to sit down with Marichis Khakir, who is the International Policy Director at Cyber Policy Center of Stanford University. Prior to this, she was the member of European Parliament for 10 years. The Wall Street Journal previously called her Europe's most wired politician, while CNN referred to her as the rising Dutch star. I was lucky to catch her on her conversation amidst her very busy schedule. Stay tuned and listen on. Good morning, Marietje. Now, welcome to uh, a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. And uh, we are very happy to host you here today. And we're in Amsterdam. And we're in Amsterdam and we are in a studio of University of Amsterdam, mm -hmm. which is also your alma mater. That's right, yes. Right? So we're going to kick it off with a simple uh, introduction of who you are. And maybe even uh, before we go into the professional career, just go back into sort of what shaped you, sort of how did your early days of development start? I don't know how early you want to start, oh, but let's start yeah. with uh, the end of high school right, period. Right. So uh, I was very happy to receive a scholarship to study in the United States for one year. And okay. so that really opened my horizon. Yeah. Uh, being at an American liberal arts college in Ohio uh, okay. was was really a lot of fun. Uh, you know, it, it just introduced me to people from all over the United States, right. but also all over the world. and. Even though it was sort of a, a year of independence, um, a mm -hmm. campus mm -hmm. is, is very different from what you find here in Amsterdam, where you know the university buildings are all over the city, and, and student life is very much integrated with the city. Right. In the United States, uh, a lot of campuses are almost like little cities of their own. Correct. Um, yeah. And so it was it was a really good experience between uh, freedom and and still having you know a lot of support from that small community. Um, and then I came back to the Netherlands, and, and one of the things that I took with me from the U.S. experience was volunteering. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had found it extremely valuable, yeah. and I was quite surprised that it's not an integral part of student life here. Okay. And so after I kind of got my feet on the ground, right. I decided to start volunteering myself, uh, and I did so in a, a crisis shelter for women, mm -hmm. which was run by nuns in a, okay. in a convent. Yeah. Uh, in the Warmoestraat, which is really here, kind of in the heart of the uh, also more sort of challenged parts of the city, right. the edge of the red light district. Right. Um, and so people who had, who had gotten into quite uh, extreme problems, like women who had been trafficked or teenagers who had been kicked out of their homes. Mm -hmm. or, you know, yeah, I also remember vividly this, this woman who was in her 70s and her son, who was a drug addict, sold oh, her wow. home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it was, it was a very formative experience in the sense that as a volunteer there during the weekend, the nuns would have time off and we would sort of take care of a group of women to make sure that there would be, you know, a schedule and that mm -hmm. agreements about going outside and everything uh, wow. had, had been kept. And so um, I decided to try to set up volunteering projects between students of the more privileged uh, student organizations yeah. uh, with projects in the city. So okay. it also included radio making for young kids, uh, but also soccer playing and, you know, fun activities for, for um, young people that didn't have all the opportunities so that there would be a cross fertilization. Fantastic. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, helping, helping um, young kids um, have new experiences yeah. was valuable uh, to contribute to, but also for the students who would live in a bubble of Beer, beer drinking yeah, and going correct. out and going to the university, yeah. stepping outside to other neighborhoods was quite valuable. Indeed. And then that put me on a path to more engagement with human rights, a uh, human rights summer school that I did called Humanity in Action, mm -hmm. uh, fellowships in the House of Representatives in the U.S. and uh, in the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia uh, in oh, The Hague. Okay. So it, I think this whole engagement with society yeah. uh, helped shape my uh, personal experiences, but also professional experiences in the end. Amazing. And then so, so you came back from U.S. and uh, then you worked, uh, did some volunteering work, but you also studied here at University of Amsterdam mm -hmm. and you studied American studies. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I started initially with uh, sociology, uh -huh. um, which in theory I really liked, but in practice I kind of missed the hands-on work. Okay. Um, so there was always this theory in sociology mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you can only really learn by participating and, and going into communities and, you know, basically stepping into the streets or the stadiums or the neighborhoods yeah. or uh, the subcultures. Correct. But in fact, we never did. 
And so I so thought, you're still what is alone. going on yeah, here? Yeah. yeah, and so I, I wanted to have something slightly more applied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was also quite, you know, torn. Like, if I, if I don't enjoy what I thought I would enjoy, what should I do next? Right. Uh, and then I had had a very positive experience also on the education level in the United States because teachers were very engaging. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they are very personally involved with how students are doing. Correct. Um, so I thought American studies, which is a very small uh, field or, you know, not too many students may also have some of those characteristics. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be true. Oh. Uh, a lot of the teachers, some of them actually American origin, okay. uh, were very engaging and... Um, yeah, it, it was at least very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really know what I would do with it, but I thought I could at least uh, finish my degree this mm. way without uh, being completely uh, turned off or bored or, or disconnected. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that already so sort of early on you had this uh, uh, combination of two different educational systems. And also what, what I found out from my experience so far is that I was in a Ukrainian school till grade eight and then the American schooling kicked in. Mm-hmm. And... There is a very fundamental difference, and I think also in a Dutch system, it's a somewhat of a theory based, but also you know you respect the status quo, and in U.S. system, it's sort of be more outspoken. And um, and did you also notice that different educational systems shaped you to an extent? When I think of the Netherlands, I never think respect the status quo. I think actually people feel quite free to challenge okay. the status quo, and um, in that sense. But I think the educational system is less. Um, less personally engaging with students. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember this notion they call contact hours, which Uh I think, you know, and it was usually very small number of hours a week, maybe six, maybe eight. Yeah. And the rest, you're kind of supposed to do your own Correct. thing. Correct, exactly, yeah. And yeah. so, I think it might be like almost too independent, yeah. right? Like, yeah. go figure it out. Right, uh, okay, And That's then a lot of yeah. students uh-huh. have to do jobs to earn Correct. money. Yeah. Uh, I used to work in a bar and a cafe and really enjoyed it. But, <laughs> you know, we, you had to kind of schedule between mm-hmm. all the different things to do. And, and there's an expectation of a lot of self-starting capabilities and... Um, you know, maybe you go to the library with yeah, friends and you, sense, yeah. you sort it out. Yeah. But I, I think some people do well mm-hmm. in that very independently structured stu- student life. But I think some people also kind of need a little bit more, you know, support and, and um, mentoring. Indeed. Yeah. So now sort of uh, moving further into your professional career, how did your professional career start off? Oh, you know, these tracks are always messy. Uh, <laughs> I enjoy talking to students because they so often ask, how did you do it? You right, know, because exactly. they, they think it, you know, it's been all this sort of uh, straight path to success. <laughs> the linear path and it's of never yeah, like yeah. that. So anyone who's listening and who feels uncertain about how to build their perfect future, <clears throat> there, there's no such a <laughs> recipe for it. But I do believe that doing what you care about mm-hmm. and what you believe in is, is very important. So um, besides American Studies, I also did New Media uh, okay, at, the, yeah. at the UVA here. And uh, it kind of, you know, got me curious about technology as well. Um, or it basically responded to my curiosity about technology. Um, and so after, well, at the end of my studies, rather, not after, but at the end, I did these two fellowships that I briefly mentioned. So one at the Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia, which mm-hmm. is a war crimes tribunal. Yeah. Wow. So it it was very serious um, and difficult work in the sense that we would look at evidence in war crimes cases and try to order the information so that the lawyers could work with it more easily. And it's, it's a, quite an eye-opener uh, when you're in your mid-twenties to see uh, the actual yeah. actual uh, harms and, and violence perpetrated in war, um, a two-hour plane ride from Amsterdam, right? Right, exactly. And um, uh, it, it taught me that I could deal with it somehow, mm-hmm. but that I also felt a huge responsibility to see how we can avoid this in the future, which, you know, this notion of how can we create a better world for other people was always kind of a part of what motivated me. Mm-hmm. But especially when you look at the war in Yugoslavia, it was also a huge failure of, of Europe. Uh, and yeah. it was a constant reminder that this whole notion of, you know, civilization is quite a thin layer uh, that things can derail mm. much more easily uh, than we would hope. So then I was very, very fortunate that I could work um, as a fellow in the House of Representatives in the United States with a member of Congress who who facilitated these fellowships called Tom Lantos. Yeah. And he had been born in Hungary. Okay. 
uh, was a Jewish uh, boy right. and um, fled from Hungary um, with the help of Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg okay. to the United States and felt very close uh, to Europe and wanted to sustain mm -hmm. the transatlantic relationship by facilitating fellowships for European students. And so there I could work on human rights and foreign affairs issues. And again, this kind of, you know, American way of looking at what's possible and not what's not possible. Correct. It, I thought it was very energizing um, because in, in the United States, you know, I was in my 20s, then nobody ever asked, oh, how old are you? Right. With this suspicion of like, who do you think you are mm -hmm, kind of tone mm -hmm, underneath mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the Netherlands, it happens quite often. Huh. Uh, I think, you know, here there there was more of a culture of, uh, you know, take your time. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's this there's this expression that says you just kind of be normal because then you're kind of crazy enough already. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, don't stick your <laughs> no, head that's above the cornfield. Because uh, you <laughs> saw the difference between the United States. But often when people ask, why am I in the Netherlands right now? I quote that. Because here, age doesn't matter as much. Oh, because really? the Good. countries that I have lived in, sort of, or the cultures that I'm very much uh, involved with, or India, I've lived in UAE, Ukraine, Russia, they're still much more conservative on that. So yeah. until you have gray hair, you don't speak up. And and from that perspective, I saw I was very liberated or empowered in a way when I'm in the Netherlands, and especially in the space of digital, I think age doesn't matter, right? No, I agree with that. It can so, almost be an advantage because there's kind of more trust in the young generation. To an extent, <laughs> you know, so I sort of capitalize on that and I see that in, in the Netherlands, I have that ability to speak and say that you know, to some very senior people that, you know, maybe we should reconsider the direction that we are taking. And that's something which I haven't had an opportunity to do in other places. Well, you're also referencing a number of societies that are much less free Absolutely, than yeah. the Netherlands. And, and again, this underlines for me the core values of what mm. we're talking about, that this is an open society. Right. Um, it's an open society. It's a very egalitarian society. Mm -hmm. um, and that's beautiful. I mean, I'm very proud of this Absolutely. country. I think it's an amazing, amazing place. And the more you travel, the more you appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, we sometimes are a little bit Calvinist in our uh -huh. approach. Um, and I think, I think, well, there's there's always room for people to to think bigger, right? And in the Agreed. U.S., that's yes. definitely yep. an energy that I that I feel even now that I'm at Stanford, where right. I just started uh, my new jobs. It's it's very much a thinking in terms of possibilities, yes, and yep. thinking big. And mm -hmm. there's there's pros and cons to that because you know if you don't make it, then you fall very hard, and we see the negative effects of that as well. There is not really a social safety net. Correct. This healthcare problem is still not solved. <laughs> yeah. There is a huge inequality across the country, but also within communities. So I mean, I don't want to glorify the United States per se. Yeah. But this notion of thinking big and the way that I had experienced it in my education, but then again in this House of Representatives where, you know, the generosity of one member of Congress to take us along to meet amazing people. Fantastic. You know, Vaclav Havel, yeah. Nelson Mandela, oh, wow. uh, Senator yeah. Clinton at the time, right. Senator Obama at the time, uh, numbers of ministers from different states. You know, it really was such an educative experience by simply being so close to the fire Fantastic. Uh, and yeah, seeing exactly. all these meetings and how it really worked. Wow. And so maybe that also planted a seed for my political And that was in your mid-20s? Yes. So uh, amazing. I mean, how many people get an opportunity like that to Absolutely. be uh, close to the fire, as you mentioned, right? And once you start seeing the problems in their complexity, then you also find a way to decide which part of it are you going to solve. So how did you end up in um, European <clears throat> Parliament? Yeah, so um, I, I continued to kind of work between the U.S. and the Netherlands. I started my own company and I spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so in my later 20s, there were a lot of my friends uh, who started to join as volunteers the presidential campaigns of various mm -hmm. candidates, mm -hmm. including Barack Obama. Right. And almost everyone I knew who was in one way or another politically involved was so excited about his uh, rise. Correct. And the change that he was going to bring, because it's almost hard to imagine today with the tensions in the transatlantic relation, yeah. how difficult we felt mm. things were under George W. Bush. Bush. Yeah. And it really felt like this progressive wind was blowing and that we were really witnessing history in the making. And so there was a lot of excitement. There was also excitement about the way in which technology could be used to engage people in new ways, especially among young people who had felt 
quite disconnected from politics and suddenly realized this is about me too. Mm-hmm. And so again, there there was a lot of energy, uh, inspiration that yep. I got from that moment in time. But in the Netherlands, looking at the European elections coming up, mm-hmm. um, I had deep concerns about the rise of the far right, which was right. already happening at the time. But I did not see young people similarly engaged here mm-hmm. in the Netherlands mm-hmm. in Europe that I saw in the United States. And I okay. thought if young people don't care enough, uh, then you know others will decide for them. You know, if they don't show up and vote, and we've seen many similar painful lessons, you know, in the Brexit referendum campaign and and whatnot. And so I thought I want to do something. And I thought maybe I could also volunteer for a campaign the way my friends in the United States would. So I called the party that suited my ideals the best, and I offered to help with campaigning. I forgot to mention that I broke off my university for one year to do creative education. Okay. So I thought maybe the campaigning, like the communications part, Uh would be where I could help. But they were quite organized and they said, you know, the best thing you can do is get back to your local chapter. Yeah. So the Amsterdam chapter in my case, and just, you know, go handing out flyers. And that was D66, right? Yes, yeah. D66 mm-hmm. for, the, for the listeners who know right. the full yeah. political spectrum here. But it's, a, <laughs> it's a progressive liberal party. Right, yeah. And um, uh, so I, I said, okay, fine, I'll get back, you know, closer to the elections because then there would be sort of more campaigns in the streets and... Uh, engaging people, handing out flyers, you know, kind of the drill, how it goes here. Quite different from the United States. Uh Uh, Also much less budget, of course. Um, But my friend, who was more active in the party, knew that I had reached out. And she asked, you know, how did it go? I said, well, fine. I mean, they want me to get back uh, in a couple of months, so I will, and it's fine. And she said, well, maybe you should consider going on the list. Because if you want to do something, then being a candidate (laughs) is also a good way to engage people. Uh And I had never thought about that. Uh, Also, because I was running my own business, I enjoyed it. And And that uh, was consulting U.S. ambassadors, I believe, or is that a a part-time thing as well? No, I started working with a uh, civil rights organization okay. in the United States and indeed it was a cooperation with the US ambassador to the Netherlands at okay. the time but I was also consulting uh, with different people cultural organizations I okay. developed a project myself which got funded and then yeah. uh, so different things but yeah that that business and um, um, I didn't even really consider this whole political path ever for myself, mm-hmm. but I put a you know like a reminder on my phone for the deadline, and I just went on with my work. So months later, when I was in New York, I remember it because I've thought back to it often now. At a strange time, because of time differences, my <laughs> alarm went off right, right with my phone, and it said you know deadline candidacy. Oh, and, and since I, I I think it must have been because I was in the U.S. I was like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can always think about a thousand reasons um, not to do something. But, you know, all things considered, these lists are very long. There's mm. usually 30 people on it. My party had one member of the European Parliament at the time. So even the chance to get close to being elected was not even on my mind. Right. I really so saw like, it as a way to participate, right. you know, to mm-hmm. go to universities, talk to young professionals, maybe other entrepreneurs and and have conversations about why Europe matters, why the Dutch role mm-hmm, in Europe mm-hmm, matters, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And just to get out the vote kind of stuff. Um, so I, I filled in the form. And uh, lo and behold, after a couple of interviews, my party recommended to its members, there's like a selection committee right. um, process, but the members get to vote on the on the list, but they recommended that I would be on place three. And I wow. you know, almost had a heart attack yeah. when, I, when I heard that. But I also very clearly realized this is a once in a lifetime Absolutely. opportunity. Yeah. And so then I had to kind of shift my attention to campaigning. And thankfully, there were a lot of great, great people who stepped forward, who wanted to help. Amazing. Who volunteered. And uh, it was about six months of no sleep mm-hmm. uh, and really, you know, bootstrapping the campaign because we don't have this tradition of fundraising that many other cultures have. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. And um, then we tripled uh, in the election. So we had a very, very good result. And then basically the marathon in the European Parliament started. Wow. Amazing. And that was about 10 years you were with the... 10 years, yeah. Right. So what are the highlights of that time? And what are you most proud of? And I know your work with net neutrality, for example, has gotten a lot of attention as well. Mm -hmm. And thank you personally for that as well. Um, So what do you take out of the time that you have spent there? What are the highlights that you would share? Oh, there's so many. Um, 
you know, what is it, closest it, to the heart? Let's say it that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually prefer talking about that much more than the sort of public successes. Correct. Okay. So being a representative in a democracy, I think is one of the most amazing things to do. I mean, it's been a huge honor and representing people, basically them putting their trust in you to represent right. them is, is a weighty but also a beautiful thing. Yeah. So um, it, it gave me a feeling every day of high motivation to make the best of it. Now, then in the European Parliament, I worked on foreign affairs issues, trade issues and technology issues. But the, the moments that I will remember most are related to human rights issues. So uh, the whole Arab Spring yeah. and the hope that it came with from people who really risked their lives, who were my age, some of them actually got killed, got imprisoned um, for daring to dream of a freer, more just society. And I thought Europe should answer these calls and this movement with a, m a major outreach, like a Marshall Plan type project that would really yeah. invest in the democracy, mm -hmm. justice reform, uh, development of these uh, North African and, and Middle Eastern uh, societies. Uh, and I, I don't think that momentum was seized. Mm -hmm. uh, others jumped into that space, for sure, with money, with agendas. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's still very, un there's a lot of unrest still uh, in the Middle East. Yeah. And um, I think there have been gambles made also by the West mm -hmm. that they would rather deal with dictators who would keep things calm, quote-unquote. Yeah, yeah. But if you look in Egypt, uh, if you look in Iraq, yeah. there is still so much that has to be resolved. Correct. And you cannot repress people indefinitely. You know, I, and I think it is unjust, first and foremost, but it's also not sustainable. So it is a losing strategy from the democracies, the European Union mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, in Sub-Saharan Africa, on the African continent, the average age is 19.4 years old. Yeah. So the population is the youth. And so what what are we telling them mm -hmm. as Europeans about what democracy is? Correct, yeah. Because they see that a lot of their leaders are corrupt, yeah. are repressive, are not providing any, mm -hmm. you know, good education, healthcare, right, job the perspectives, indeed, yeah. the basics of yeah. life. Yeah. And Yet, we uh, see government-to-government -government relations still quite strong. Mm. So, I, I felt quite strongly about putting democracy and human rights first. Uh, also, when it comes to trade, for example, uh, worked on an issue that is still very much on my mind, and I think a hot topic, which is surveillance yep, technologies and, exactly. and how they're traded without much restriction. Right. And they're used, first and foremost, to target journalists, opposition figures, you know, people who are already vulnerable and courageous mm -hmm. in speaking out. And then, you know, the, the repression of the powers that they challenge gets, you know, amplified because they can use these, these systems that are designed, marketed and sold for repression. Indeed. And I think this is interesting because you also called out certain people, countries on that. And uh, specifically that a lot of these technologies initially uh, have been built in countries where with strong rule of law, mm -hmm. right? But we often do not recognize its potential ability to be used in different ways, yes. right? So, so what a lot of technologies indeed are from the Valley or from Europe. When we talked about Nokia, for example, and telecommunications uh, situation as well. But once they leave our borders, there is opportunity for misuse. So now, like, there's also opportunity for misuse within our borders, but uh, especially when there's no safeguards. But yeah, go ahead. Right. So, and that sort of now, especially when the world is being more and more connected, yes. and we are getting uh, people connected to the web, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people every month, mm -hmm. and as the connectivity gets cheaper, well, what it happens is that the people who want to do good can do immense good, but there are people who want to do bad also have, you know, immense opportunity to do bad. And that raises the question of governance. And that's sort yes. of, uh, like, I believe, your main space of uh, work, mm -hmm. right? So, and you've been with the European uh, Parliament for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you sort of shifted to more of academia, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, how, how do you sort of explain that? Or why would that be the change? So I see this whole technological frontier 
as the frontier for our rights and freedoms. Okay. So, you know, the connection between what drives me most is the battle for more freedom for more people and the protection of rights for everyone. And uh, I think it's it's under a lot of pressure. Also, in the democracies of this world, there's decline in democracies, there's yeah. attacks on civil society, there are violations of human rights, sometimes in the name of, you know, countering terrorism or quote-unquote managing migration. Mm. And so the EU, uh, the US, you know, we can have a whole different discussion about, right. but certainly also the United States, are no longer really living up to this promise of respecting uh, democracy and human rights first. And and I think that will have a high price. It will have a high price because I think it is in our self-interest uh, to focus on values and rights, but it, it was also, you know, a soft power, a very important element of our credibility. And unfortunately, we've seen that liberty and liberal democracy have too often been articulated in euros yeah. and in economic mm. growth and not mm -hmm. so much in freedoms. That's why I emphasize it so much because for right. me, it's always been about the freedoms uh -huh. and the responsibility that our wealth and our position in the world brings in terms of that. So when you see freedom, freedom is a very complex term. Now, if an interesting book by, I think, by uh, philosopher Hobbes was Leviathan, mm -hmm. and where he also mentioned about, you know, if you give everybody freedom, the natural way for people would be to fight or for uh, seek for war. Now, at what point do you see, and that's actually a very relevant discussion right now, is that, okay, in the physical world, we have more or less understood what are the rights we have to give away to have a just society. The world of internet is still fairly new, and yeah. we have had the Wild West, and to an extent, I would still say we, we are somewhat deregulated or unregulated. Absolutely. Right? So... How do you define, is there a way to define and is there any methodology that you would suggest on that? Yeah, so you're right that this is a very complex question, but where uh, the sort of um, guardrails come in is with the rule of law, right? Mm. Or rules-based right. order. Uh -huh. So those rules are not there to restrict, but to enable. And certainly when it comes to the respect for, for individual rights or, or collective rights and, and fundamental freedoms, they have to be safeguarded somehow, yeah. which also means that there have to be consequences when there is violation. Accountability is usually important. Enforcement of rights is usually important. And that's where institutions come in. And so the, f the foundational principles then lead to, you know, operationalizing mechanisms like institutions and laws Correct. and Correct. Uh, whatnot. And you're absolutely right that in the whole digital domain, this has not nearly been as advanced. And, and I think actually deliberately to some extent, mm -hmm. because I think especially in the United States, there was long the belief, the conviction that the rollout of technology would bring on its tail <laughs> or, you know, with the same wave, a self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. of democratizing and facilitating freedom. Now, I think this is a hugely naive vision, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. but I do believe that has been the narrative mm -hmm. and also the narrative coming out of Silicon Valley as the key argument not to regulate. Right, right. Basically saying if you do that, then the whole idea of the open internet and all the uh, advantages will be killed. Well, yeah, well, this is an interesting also debate, right? If you over-regulate too early, then it can actually lead to slowdown of the well of the innovation. On the other hand, if you regulate too late, well, that has uh, unseen consequences. Do you think now is the time that the society has matured enough, or the space of internet has matured enough that this is a good time to start regulating? And we see things like, for example, GDPR. We even things on net neutrality. Is this the point where we see that there's few uh, organizations that have gotten too much power now that it is time to act? So, or are we too late even? Well, that's a good question, but let's look first at the concept of regulation, because I think there's a huge simplification in the way that it's often referenced when it comes to regulating the internet or mm -hmm. regulating technology. It's not exactly how it works. When you think about existing regulations, we hardly talk about, oh, the economy is being regulated, mm. but we talk about preventing money laundering right. or ensuring Just, yeah. a level playing mm -hmm, field mm -hmm, or... Mm -hmm you know, the safety of, of digital financial services Correct, or yeah. the rights of consumers when they engage with banks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there is usually much more specificity about what the goal is yeah. of the regulation. And I, I would encourage everyone thinking about this to think about regulation around technology in the same way because it's not black and white. In mm -hmm. fact, a lot of the 
massive advantages for the big tech platforms today have been enabled by regulation. Of course, they forget to mention that when they're lobbying against new steps. <laughs> of course, but yeah. it is absolutely enabled by regulation. But do you think? I mean, so so what you're saying is that yes, in a lot of industries, we have gotten institutions, we have started dissecting our problems and finding policies to fix one by one. But then if you look at the space of digital, it's still fairly new. Would you say that the problem is still education of the mass in terms of, you know, how to regulate or where to look at? Because majority of people is one, maybe not even interested in this discussion, and two, doesn't know where to start. Do you think uh, we still have a fundamental issue with um, education in the space of uh, technology? Well, well-informed public debate is always good. And when it comes to technology, this is relevant because technology now impacts every Absolutely. aspect of life, yeah. from agriculture to traffic to the news media to uh, politics to uh, healthcare. I mean, there's there's no area where technology does not have a big impact and with AI that's getting exponentially uh, the case. But I would encourage thinking about the principles that we want to preserve mm -hmm. and how to make that work in the digital domain. So in that sense, it makes it easier because we don't need separate laws for separate technologies. We need to make sure that, for example, non-discrimination mm -hmm. also applies to algorithms or fair competition is also enforced when it comes to data mergers, not right, only economic right, right. Uh, weighing mm -hmm. of uh, a merger and, merger and acquisition or that we look at whether uh, algorithm, uh, algorithms or machine learning processes also respect fair competition. So some, some of the fundamental human rights or the fundamental values that we hold uh, true should be kept in physical world and the digital world. Yeah, so the regulation should facilitate that. And sometimes that indeed may impact innovation. I, I would still like to see proof that it actually stifles innovation. Mm -hmm, I think it's mm -hmm. a bit of a... A mantra that we hear a lot of, but that's not necessarily true because uh, innovation can also really be spurred mm -hmm. by regulation or yeah. by necessity, let's say. That um, is interesting. Exactly. I had an interesting conversation with a professor from TU Delft about GDPR, and he was uh, one of the members of also um, enabling GDPR with the European uh, Parliament as well. And uh, now, he said exactly that. He's like, why don't we see this as an opportunity? Because if we put certain, well, constraints, but that, that is how we want uh, people to develop and companies and people are finding new solutions to cater to that need. Well, but let's also challenge the notion that innovation trumps every other value. This is, of course, a simplification mm -hmm. that is enormous. I mean, I believe that democracy yeah. and societal good has a lot of value. And we cannot just say everything has to make way for right. innovation mm. because innovation can also lead to terrible things. I mean, you know, nuclear weapons were also an innovation. Yeah. So um, I think it's now time to go a little bit deeper yeah. in this discussion yeah. and it would create a, a better debate about where we actually want to be and how we want to get there instead of staying in these somewhat shallow notions of, you know, stifling innovation and regulation as one concept. Indeed, just like yeah. technology is not one concept, just like Silicon Valley is not just Facebook, we need to kind of move beyond. Right, right. And uh, I'm excited about being part of that discussion um, at another part of the world. Right. Um, where I think a lot of decisions and, in fact, governance of technology is being done, which is Silicon Valley. It's not seen as a hub of governance, but it is. When you think about the rules and the standards that are baked into the business models, baked into the technology that is being developed there, they're extremely decisive, possibly more decisive than laws right. in some areas. That's that's very interesting. And we'll get to that, uh, to, to your time in, uh, in uh, at Stanford, and we'll sort of introduce what you're doing there. But also it's interesting. So, I mean, um, the Wall Street Journal called you the most wired European politician. Now, how do you keep up with time? Uh, uh, because that is something we see that the public uh, sector often uh, lags behind. If I listen to congressional hearings with some of the um, big CEOs, mm -hmm. then you, the kind of even questions that are raised, you see that there is, there is a major gap. How do you keep up and how do you sort of suggest your colleagues or also society to keep up with this debate? So keeping up is always a major challenge. And there's also a division of labor in any parliament. You know, I'm not a farmer, and if you ask farmers whether there should be more knowledge about farming in the parliament, they will always of say course, yes. Yeah. So it's more important that the group of people that are responsible for the regulations actually know exactly what is going on, um, and that's a challenge. But I would also 
say, and this is this is becoming a, an ever bigger problem, that the total lack of transparency mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about how some of these technologies work makes it harder to have a well-informed debate. And so we're in a kind of catch-22 where the companies say these are completely irrelevant proposals and why haven't you thought about A, B, C, D, right. while in order to have well-informed and evidence-based yeah. <laughs> yeah. proposals, yeah. you need more access to information and more transparency of how you know, the machine room actually works in a lot of these tech companies. And of course, there's a major reluctance to give that access to information. So we need meaningful access to information in order to have well-informed public debates, to have evidence-based policies that are actually going to hit the, the goal. Makes sense, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so so when we talked about uh, just a few minutes back about um, the fundamental sort of well, even human rights, but also like the uh, notion of democracy, mm -hmm. and that in a way one could question is a more of a Western thought. Now, for is there one world order that we say that this is a way to regulate, or we should also work with other governments, for example, the Chinese government, which has a very big say right now on the space of digitalization on their point of views because still if you look at um, the European way it's very fundamentally different than what we see in the Chinese way oh it's very different indeed, indeed. But, but I would challenge the notion that democracy is, is a Western way I mean you have Indian roots India is the biggest democracy right. even though its democracy is challenged uh, as well oh, yeah but I believe that the future of, of democracy in the world will probably be decided in India uh, more than in, in Europe, for example. Uh, and I'm I'm hoping that Europeans will work with India much more intensively and that there will be room for that in India as well, because I think it is crucially important, crucially important. Mm -hmm. And also that we stick together as believers in democracy. Right. So that could be governments, it could be civil society, it could be company leaders, could be people in the technological community, because there is still an enormous expectation also from people in states where they face repression, you know, that there will be delivery of democracy and that they will also be considered. Correct, yeah. And so when we look at China, you're right that they adhere to a completely different model, but there's also a lot of change happening in China itself. Uh, nothing is static. So 20 years ago, there was the expectation that uh, the internet would be a sort of autonomous space where yeah. rules would not apply mm -hmm. and where liberty would almost self in a self-fulfilling prophecy, be uh, the the main value. Right. We've now seen how much more complicated that is. That actually being more connected also brings more vulnerabilities uh, for cyber attacks, for Absolutely. disinformation, for hybrid uh, conflict, and that people like in the United States who have lots of devices and, and connectivity and innovations are yeah. actually the victims there. Indeed. So, I believe that it is way too early to sort of. Uh, decide that, for example, China is going to be the dominant factor. Mm -hmm. But we have to keep our eyes open in terms of what's happening there. And also how our own role vis-a-vis -vis China should uh, be reconsidered. Because mm -hmm. I believe that policies in, let's say, the West for the moment, are still very much decided by what I call gold rush. Mm -hmm. Right? Our companies are so eager to get those Chinese contracts and right. to reap the benefits of right. Chinese growth. And I understand that, but I think it's unacceptable that we're too quiet about mass concentration camp type facilities that are also mass surveillance facilities that are also training the Chinese AI, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, levels. And we're just not speaking out. And so I think what technology brings, which is which is almost unprecedented, is that it's harder and harder to separate trade interests, yeah. economic interests, technological yeah. questions, and human rights issues, because they're all integrated. That's a very interesting one. And, and China, its own, we can uh, continue speaking for yes. hours. Yes. You know? And uh, th there's a, it's an ethical debate as well. And if you think of greater good uh, way of uh, thinking, then there's sort of, well, they've elevated a lot of people from poverty. Maybe there is also, like, my bigger question is sort of, do we work collaboratively? Do we have a global discussion? Or is it still a very concentrated Western discussion? What would you say on that? Um, I think there is an appetite for global discussion. Mm -hmm. But not all global players are, are willing to engage. Right. And there are different visions of how such a debate should take place. 
where I would say the Western, but probably also in India, approach is much more to be inclusive, have mm -hmm. a big table, have civil society at the table, have tech experts at the table. Right. You know, to, to hear from those people who are going to be impacted. Indeed. It's not necessarily the way uh, states like Russia and China deal with it. They think the government uh, should prioritize mm. sovereignty yeah, yeah. and that the government always is the most powerful. And um, that leads to a different approach from the beginning. But, you know, I, I also think that this is a fact of life. We've always lived in a world where different governance models were... Uh, coexisting and yeah. competing um, and we worked it out in different ways so I think it is extremely important to have a global discussion but not to be uh, let's say um, to be compromised no, indeed. and On coerced into, into uh, giving away core values right. that in fact I believe need more defending rather than eroding okay now sort of uh, moving to Stanford yeah and um, so the interesting thing is, of course, I mean, Stanford is the, the cradle of uh, the Internet and uh, the way we know it. And uh, it's a great place to be. Now, the question is, if it was a cradle of Internet, is it also the place that is? So, so in a way, the first 50 years, to an extent, were shaped by the valley. Mm -hmm. That's a broad statement, but we could say that. Do you think the next 50 years would be shaped there? And is that why you are there as well? Or do you think maybe the epicenter of further innovation is somewhere else? There's multiple epicenters uh, of innovation, and we also have to make sure that, that we understand the impact on multiple other places from Silicon Valley-based companies. And I think a, a global perspective is too often lacking there. Mm. Um, the reason why I think it's, it's a wonderful place to be, and indeed Stanford is an amazing uh, place to work, um, is because I believe that there is a tipping point happening in America, that a lot of leaders in Silicon Valley, people working for companies in Silicon Valley, do not want to be part of the problem. Mm. And they want to actually deal with the challenges that the products that they created have brought upon society. And, you know, maybe they're not acting fast enough. I mean, I think there should be a bigger dose of ambition, resources invested, yeah. openness in the conversation, serious engagement by the top-level leaders. So I'm not, not really satisfied with where things are yet, but I do think things are changing and that the American people are also asking for change, for regulation, in fact. Um, so I am curious to understand better what the triggers are for change in Silicon Valley and also what the cutting edge of technology is, which is still being researched and developed at Stanford. And my question is always, what does it mean for society? What does right. it mean for fundamental right. freedoms and Indeed. human rights? And so being close to that fire excites me. And I hope to bring notions of you know, the importance of a, a rules-based order, the importance of, or the, the the working of rules as such. So I'm going to be teaching a class on the rule of law and artificial intelligence, for example, um, but also thinking through concepts of how the preservation of principles can be managed across borders and with the rapid evolution of technology. Right, yeah. So we also have to rethink governance uh, without into the compromising. multi-stakeholder governance model, I believe that's... Uh, yeah, well, that's a model, uh, which I believe has to evolve from process to results. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just at the Internet Governance yeah. Forum in Berlin. Correct. And too often it's um, a big table with a lot of people, mm -hmm. which is great, but we have to truly force ourselves to ask, and now what? Mm. What does this lead to? And I always remind people that democracy is a multi-stakeholder process. Absolutely. So I'm not sure that we really, you know, always need sort of a next right. level. And there's also the risk that companies are actually quite dominant in this space so that they can use it to kind of become the decision makers. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot that needs to be done. Things like checks and balances, things like implementation, bringing this to the next step. Indeed. <clears throat> Now, uh, so just for the audience, uh, what are your current roles at Stanford? Because you have quite a complex, I feel like even two or three roles within Stanford. I have two roles at Stanford, right. and the person who thought of the titles probably <laughs> did not anticipate what this would sound like it, at a it podcast. Is a bit of a mouthful. So here we go. So I am International Director of Policy at right. the Cyber Policy Center. Right. <laughs> and I'm International Policy Fellow at the Institute for Human Centered AI. Correct. Yeah. So, so in a nutshell, I think about policy. Governance and technology. 
Fantastic. So do you think like there was a point that you said, okay, is this for you like a more of a sabbatical where you want to learn, develop yourself there and come back into European politics? Or is this a sort of a weighty shift for you that, okay, politics was one, I'm moving now into academia per se, or is it, is it in between academia and policy? How do you define your current role? Well, I've started a month ago, right. so I'm still <laughs> sort of, you know, uh, new at school. Right, and, exactly. Um, uh, I consider the role as looking at the same issues that I looked at in the European Parliament, mm -hmm. but from a very different perspective. And it was very important for me to be able to do so independently. I didn't see myself working for a big company, for example. Right. Um, so we'll have to see, I think, how it, how it shapes uh, with a little bit more time. Yeah. But um, I think there's an immense amount of work that needs to be done and also a need to connect the dots. In policy, often it's it's one topic, uh, like copyright or net neutrality or mm -hmm, cybersecurity, mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. very important. But there's also a bigger conceptual framework within which we have to put this. Um, and I hope to contribute to that as well. This is notion of a democratic model of right. governing technology. I think for me, out of a sort of, there's a lot that of interesting topics and all of them are very relevant. Mm -hmm. But human-centered AI sort of sort of got me interested. And yep. uh, that is a space where we... What? How do you define human-centered AI, uh, AI? So I believe that human agency should come first and that people uh, should be in charge mm -hmm. when it comes to mm -hmm. the way they want to use technology. So also the democratizing of governing the technology as such. Um, but I think human-centered AI means different things to different people. Exactly, <laughs> uh, yeah. So for a lot of people, I think it means... Um, optimizing the human experience, augmenting the human experience. Right. And um, uh, again, I think it's hard to say, uh, make a general judgment on that because it very much depends on how, what the risks are, uh, what the benefits are. Um, but I think it's, it's crucial that we try to see through the intended, but also very much the unintended consequences that could come out of the use of AI because through machine learning, there can be a lot of surprises, uh, not always positive ones. Correct, yeah. And so we should, we should build in the pace to understand these outcomes, to log them, to make them understandable, also from people who are very close to these processes. Because when I talk to engineers that are in the space of AI, they say nobody really knows how the algorithm really works anymore. And it's Especially been iterated. Especially with machine learning, yeah. indeed, yeah been iterated a thousand times or you know right. a gazillion times correct and um it has just become like a new uh entity as Indeed, such yeah. and so this notion of of truly understanding and having the kind of transparency in the public interest mm -hmm. making sure that the public interest is served and not just the private interest so you know too often we see that the the benefits and the profits are with the private sector and the costs literally mm -hmm. are are for the public and you know, that's unsustainable. So I, I'm very interested to looking at this whole, you know, public interest and how it's impacted. Fantastic. So what is one sort of, you know, problem which is so close to your heart that you want to solve, maybe using artificial intelligence or even sort of um, watching out that it, artificial intelligence doesn't hinder the, the situation? So when you look at the resilience of democracy, mm -hmm. there's a lot of flashpoints of concern yeah. that have been exacerbated by technology. Disinformation, the hacking and manipulation of uh, the technologies that are used to uh, do the electoral process, could be voting machines, could be registering people to vote, could be the transmission of votes, uh, the whole, the whole uh, chain, if you will. Um, and I believe that we, were, we are still looking back at, for example, 2016 or other cases of manipulation while the next generation of technologies like deep, deep fakes, oh, for example, that's a very interesting one. are Indeed. already yeah. coming. Yeah. And so in the broadest sense, the resilience of democracy is what I care mm -hmm, about. But mm -hmm. I think around elections, because there's always so much at stake. Absolutely. And the, the enemies of democracy are very keen to undermine the credibility of the democratic process. And elections are simply very important for that. Yeah. So I, I would look with, with even more interest, let's say, uh, at the question of technology and democracy when it comes to elections. So the situation with deepfakes is actually a very interesting one mm -hmm. because 
you know, in all cultures, I think we have one quote about what we see is what we believe in some way or form. And now that it, that notion itself is being questioned, you know, with deep fakes, and it's a matter of time. Like when I first learned about deep fakes about three years ago, I was like, ah, okay, well, scary, but I can still make a difference. It's getting better and better over time. Yeah. So how do you navigate actually people, especially in democracy, when there's free access of information and everybody becomes a reporter? There's a lot of you know fake news, and now with deep fakes, we sort of even increase or you know develop the problem further. How do you navigate the society to make just decisions or you know well-informed decisions in that case to elect the right representatives into the government? Mm-hmm. Well. It will partially probably be uh, technological solutions that can distinguish whether something has been tampered with or not. So we need technology not. to regulate technology. Yeah. Yes, we do actually. Yeah. We do. Or to at least recognize the patterns. Right. You know, it, it, what the naked eye can't see, a machine can stretch out right. and map out yeah. and see yeah. how, how images have been doctored with, etc. But it's a cat and mouse game between the evolution of these technologies Absolutely, yeah. also in text yeah. i mean we think about deep fakes a lot in terms of images like mm-hmm. videos oh yeah but there's also ai generated texts already that are hard for oh, people yes. to distinguish from oh, having yes, been yeah. produced by a human being so i think transparency is very important so i was uh, at an ft future of news event correct here that, in amsterdam yeah. the other day which is one of the reasons why i'm here now <laughs> right and um it, it came up very interestingly. Some of the editors were talking about how they have AI uh, assembled uh, messages on events like local elections or soccer matches or things like that. So where there's a fairly straightforward um, issue, like this party got that many yeah. votes, this team won the game with this score. And, you know, they, they were happy about this because it frees up journalists' time to do more <laughs> meaningful reporting. Right. But I think a key question is, should the reader know? Mm. Should the reader be informed exactly. that this yeah. article has not been produced by a human being? Right. Right? And and this is a very simple example now. But with the speed with which this technology no, evolves, yeah. Yeah. you know, also with, with uh, customer service chatbots and things like that, Correct. are you talking to a person right. or not? And how much of it should we inform the people? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, transparency yeah. In, in, in every aspect uh, will probably be uh, part of the solution. Indeed. But it has to go further than where we are now. It has to also go into the uh, algorithmic processes, uh, maybe not by everyone, but by the regulators that are mandated to, to legitimately look at things like discrimination, the handling of personal data, micro-targeting. Uh, questions yeah. of, of antitrust and fair competition. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you look at the cyberspace, the whole cyber warfare situation is also a significant issue. And I is. had a chance to speak to the Minister of uh, Defense of the Netherlands as well about two years ago. And I asked her one question about how much of our budget is moving from physical defense to cyber defense. Mm-hmm. To that, her, she, she gave me a whole booklet, and I, it was quite interesting to read into that. But that's definitely... Um, space of contention as well and yes. in a way you know well you must be having a lot of insight for that but due to time i'm thinking sort of well we could go on on this discussion now to to sort of wrap up um what are the things from your personal side that you're most excited for that and you're looking forward to while you're at stanford i love seeing so many people from all over the world that are uh, doing their very, very best, working very, very hard to understand the complexities of our world and of of technology better. Uh, And I hope to work with them to look at the implications of the cutting edge of technology Mm -hmm. for society, for democracy, for human rights. And uh, the energy that that you find on campuses in the US and, and that I found on Stanford's campus is very inspiring to me. There are wonderful professors there. Everybody's quite open. There's mm-hmm. a culture of horizontal cooperation. So if you want to go into a behavioral psychology class or theoretical math class, I should probably not go there because I would probably not understand, but let's say I would try <laughs> right, to understand right. um, that I could sign up. Amazing. And this this uh, openness and cross-fertilization, I believe, can lead to great results. And I hope that there will be um, more space for, for social science related questions, um, for societal questions. 
And my sense is that from the younger generation, but you probably know this better than I do because you are the younger generation, <laughs> um, that values are actually very important for them. Absolutely. And my sense is that the best computer scientists want to be proud of the work they do, want to work for companies which values they support. Right. And so the competition among companies will inevitably also have to incorporate their pronunciation of values and sticking to it. And you see that with every compromise there, whether it's you know, working on products in China in an intransparent way that may help repression of people or uh, a lack of accountability for Me Too-related mm -hmm. sexual mm -hmm. uh, harassment and yeah. intimidation cases... People are speaking up more and more. Absolutely. So there, and even users on platforms are mobilizing. So there is an expectation of democracy, but it's just not institutionalized. And so I think the question where the best talents in the computer uh, science space are going to go and how values matter in their lives, I'm curious about. And I hope that with classes like on the rule of law and artificial intelligence, we can bring that discussion further in a meaningful way. Amazing. I think that that sort of in a way concludes our um, uh, conversation on quite a strong note. But the, one of the last questions would be, do you see the world in a more... Because what we discussed, there's a lot of, you know, doomy, gloomy situations that uh, one should be aware of. And that's why we have people like you who are putting their time and effort into coming to bringing the people to the discussion, try to solve that. But are you still more positive about the outlook of the world? Or is there, you know, do you feel that we are not taking as a society the right direction at this point? Um, I'm quite concerned. Okay. I'm quite concerned, but I do think there's a waking up going on about the impact of technology, for example, which has long been viewed in utopian ways yeah. um, that is now rapidly changing. So we have to keep our eyes open. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I don't want to sound uh, pessimistic for the sake of it, but I think when you, when you make laws or when you think about safeguards, you often want to think about what could go wrong. Correct. And yeah. not only what is going well, mm. <laughs> So it's also professional deformation a little bit. Um, and maybe it's, it's you know, not only in my character, but also in my experiences that once you've seen societies that looked fine mm. and derailed very fast, um, bringing out the, the very, very dark uh, that's in people, right? we have to constantly fight back against that and put safeguards in place against the worst that could happen. You know, I would rather be safe than sorry. Right, uh, right. And I'm happy to be proven wrong and seeing that some of these safeguards are not necessary. But so far, I think they are. And I think some of the incidents that we've seen around AI, whether it's lack of proper recognition of people who are uh, have black skin color, for example, when it comes to facial recognition right. or the mislabeling of people, the excluding of mm -hmm. certain categories of people, women, for example, uh, when, when um, it came to HR... Uh, technology. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, these these mistakes are so blatant and probably unintended, mm -hmm. but they still happen Absolutely. on a systematic level, and we need to draw lessons from that. Right. And we have right. to say, as a society, you know, a a temp agency does not get to re refuse people because they have a Muslim name or another skin color than what is the dominant skin color or whatnot. Th that doesn't. That doesn't become accepted when it happens in the invisible context of an algorithm either. And so Indeed. the principles yeah. should guide us through. But to safeguard those principles that are already under a lot of yeah. pressure, yeah. we need to do work. Correct. Absolutely. Wow. Um, so the last sort of quick question, is there any book recommendations or books that have shaped you that you would want the uh, younger generation or your generation to read into? Oh, gosh. I'm reading a very, very good book, but a very uh, difficult one on the Second World War right now. Okay. So that's like front of mind, but maybe maybe more in the tech space. All right. Um, well, I also read a lot of reports. Um, I think the Council of Europe is doing very important work. So even though I believe the EU is a good place to watch, the Council of Europe is doing very important work when it comes to AI. Mm -hmm. um, I liked... Um, the book Speech Police by David Kay, yeah. uh, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression. It's Fantastic. a very thin book. Some people like that. That's great. <laughs> and it really puts in context this global discussion about 
you know, who gets to decide what we say, mm, what, what we're exactly. allowed to say. Right. And so very much. Oh, that's a very interesting topic. As no, well. it's very nice, <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. And it, it also talks about, you know, the, the decisions that tech companies already make on speech, but also on how people are repressed, obviously, in other parts of the world and how technology plays a part in that. Um, well, what else? Um, I... Mm, well, there's so many books that are <laughs> that are quite amazing. I'm like yeah. dizzy of it. I mean, <laughs> um, there's a book called The Big Nine uh, that, that's really good uh, on the big nine, nine big tech companies, including right. the big Chinese ones, uh -huh. and, and what they're doing when it comes to AI and how we have a choice in how we think about governance. Right. Um, I think that was amazing. A, that was a pretty good book. I read Edward Snowden's book, which I right. think is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Keep Great. reading in, in any case and don't only read about your professional uh, life. So I mean, it's also advice, really, right? yeah, ke keep your, your mind open, broad, yeah. go to a museum sometimes, go dancing, do <laughs> things that are that are fun too. Great. I think on that note, I will like to thank you very much for your time and uh, interesting conversation that we've had and I know how busy your schedule is and we're very lucky to have you here in Amsterdam at your alma mater as well as your you know home city for a few days so here we are so I wish you a lot of good luck in uh, Stanford and uh, I'm really curious to sort of follow your socials and see what you're up to and um, what are the things that are happening because you're at the cutting edge and um, the the world needs a bit of recalibration and that's what you're working on. So thank you very much. And yeah. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the day and good luck with your podcast and, yep. and reaching young people and navigating their choices. Thank you. Good.